The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews. We are up to chapter 5, starting in verse 11. If you have one of the blue Bibles from the back, this is page 582. And if you would stand together as we read God's word. Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Praise the Lord for his word. Please join me in prayer. Father, we, we know that naturally, according to the, the impulses and patterns of this world, we have no reason to pay attention right now. We have no reason to focus on your word and to cherish your word. We 
we are distracted by many things. We have pressures in our lives. We have relational problems. We have tensions at work. We have anxieties. And it would be very natural for us to fritter away this opportunity to hear the very words of God as we think about those things. So help us now, God, we pray. Focus us like a laser on this truth that's about to be revealed. And Lord, we know your promise that if we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, all these things will be added to us as well. Help us to trust that now, we pray. Amen. Humanity in our pride, we never like being corrected. We never like being warned or challenged or told that um, we're headed in a dangerous direction. We don't like to hear that the conclusions that we take for granted just aren't so certain. In 1998, the chief of Thailand's meteorological department, Smith Thamasuraj, this man attracted hatred nationwide, and he was labeled a scaremongering crackpot when he started predicting that the southwest coast of Thailand was extremely vulnerable to a deadly tsunami. He had suggested systemic changes and practical precautions that would be costly and, and might not uh, bear fruit for years to come. And in response, the powerful tourism industry and the members of parliament that represented them responded by insulting him, defaming him. He wasn't even welcome to show his face anywhere near the resort region of Phuket. And uh, Mr. Thamasaraj retired with a soiled reputation. But only six years later came the tsunami of December 26, 2004, which laid waste the resort areas, killing about 9,000 people, injuring and leaving homeless thousands more. And part of the nation's mourning at that time was lamenting the fact that the inconvenient warnings hadn't been heeded. Short-term comfort had been of more value to them than long-term security. And I wonder if it'll be any different for us when we hear a warning of a preventable disaster today. We've already heard in Hebrews chapter 2 that we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. We were told that then in chapter 3, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We were told in chapter 4 to strive to enter God's rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as they did in Moses' day. And today our main thought is let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. We need to do this. Because the cost of not doing it is infinitely high. We should understand that and we should grow like our life depends on it. So supporting that main exhortation to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, we're going to see today a rebuke, a warning, and a reassurance in the text. A rebuke, a warning, and a reassurance. So let's start with the rebuke, starting in chapter 5, verse 11, going all the way to 6, verse 2. This rebuke starts with a comment. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Ouch. Well, about what does he have much to say? 
If you recall last week, the first part of chapter 5 was speaking about Jesus as the great high priest. And we were thinking about what does it mean that Jesus is better than Aaron? What does it mean that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek? Hmm. And the author of Hebrews wants to keep going on that train of thought, and he will. He'll come back to it in chapter 7. But first he pauses here to rebuke his listeners because he can tell that this technical talk about the priesthood is hard for them to digest. And it shouldn't be. So this blunt rebuke calls, um, calls their ability to hear complex truths sluggish. They're sluggish of hearing. And it's not that they're somehow unable to understand these concepts. The problem is that they don't want to exert the energy that's required to pay attention in that way. It interests them up to a point, and then their eyes glaze over. They're kind of like high school students who are in um, consumer education class, and, and they have no idea that they're checking out, you know, when material's being taught that's going to be insanely practical for their lives. Well, verse 12 says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, is this suggesting that all Christians should be teachers? No. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So he's not saying that everyone should grow to become a, a pastor or a seminary professor. He's just saying that it's expected that every believer should grow to the point where they're prepared to guide new believers in the fundamentals of the faith. Because as we walk with Christ, new believers are going to come into our lives. And also, we need to be able to exhort one another every day, like chapter 3 suggested. So we have a responsibility to teach each other. And this isn't, um, this isn't a, a top-down pyramid. All of us should be learning from all of us. Because we all have the same Word of God, and we all have the same Spirit. So you, even as uh, maybe a week's old Christian, might be living out a part of this word much better than I am, and I want to have eyes to see and I want to have ears to hear what God has revealed to you in ways that my heart might desperately need to hear. And that's how we all keep moving forward together. And that's the softness, that's the eagerness we should all have when we come to God's word. Whether we're looking at it on the page or hearing it from each other's lips, but instead, the recipients of Hebrews acted like they had no need for further learning. They were kicked back. They were catching up on Instagram when he started all that stuff about entering God's rest and the principles of priesthood. But in fact, the audience of Hebrews is in no position to ignore instruction. They needed someone to teach them again the basic principles. The, the word for basic principles there stoicheia. It can refer to a language's alphabet. Now, it's great when you learn the alphabet at the beginning of your journey in a language, right? That's, that's very necessary. But if that's all that you keep learning, like imagine a parent of an eight-year-old boasting to everyone, hey, my kid knows his ABCs. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, so these people are content. They're, they're just content to keep singing the alphabet song. Not only do they have dull ears, but they also have an immature spiritual appetite. So now the imagery is going to shift from the classroom to the dining room. 
You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. There's nothing wrong with a newborn being nourished by his mother's milk. It's beautiful. It's how it should be. But there's everything wrong with offering mother's milk to an older child who's perfectly capable of eating sandwiches or steak. Immature appetite for better knowing God is not cute. It's not funny. It's sad in the very limited world that it's creating for oneself. And this begs the question, how do you respond when you run up against the difficult concepts in Scripture? Do you breeze over it? Do you shut down? Do you flip back to more familiar passages? Do you spit out that food and wine that you want pudding and ice cream instead? Verse 14 says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So now we're shifting from the dining room to the workout room. There's this image of athletic training for our powers of discernment. And those who are willing to work out their muscles of distinguishing good from evil, those people will hunger for the solid food of Scripture. It's the nutrients, it's the sustenance that we need in order to be healthy and strong. And only by carefully considering the Scriptures can we rightly train and build the discernment of our souls. Now it's important that I point out that these verses are not saying, please don't hear them saying this, that, well, you're not smart enough in the Bible. No, that's not the message here. Mere knowledge is not what God approves. We've said this many times here, that you can know the Bible backward and forward and still have a hard and proud heart that will be condemned in the end. It's not mere knowledge that's the issue. It's the lack of desire to grow. A lack of desire to grow. That's that's what's being pointed out here. We should desire to grow in an understanding and a living out of Scripture. The desire to grow is what God is looking for. And if we have a a ho-hum sort of attitude toward the Bible, well, then it reveals that our heart doesn't truly yearn to hear from God. What excuses do you often hear or, or tell yourself for ignorance of the Bible or lack of maturity? What would it even look like to be on track in this area where we're not dull of hearing? What would it look like? Discernment doesn't mean that you have it all figured out, right? But it does mean that the Bible won't disorient us. When we run into things that we don't grasp or we don't immediately see the relevance of, we won't back away, but instead we'll press in. We'll pray for answers. We'll seek out answers. We'll be patient until we get the answers. But as we grow in discernment, we will also start to notice that we're intuiting more and more of the answers. We can sort of perceive what sort of answers might be possible and which ones wouldn't be. Why can we start to intuit that? Because our powers of discernment are being built up by the Word of God, and they're being toned by the Word of God. So... Because we don't want to stay dull of hearing, we'll take the advice of chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. 
Now, when this says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, it doesn't mean let us leave behind. Okay, let's just be clear about that. It doesn't mean leave by the wayside. The elementary doctrine is, of course, always necessary, and it's always beautiful. It's always the foundation. But we have to move on from focusing exclusively on the basics. We have to build on them so that their truth can be seen as even more profound and their implications can be drawn out more and more across every part of our lives. The elementary doctrines that we're going we're gonna to leave behind focusing exclusively on these, they're listed here in three pairs. So first, repentance and faith. Uh, repentance from dead works, faith toward God. So this has to do with that initial heart change when you come to God, when you come to Christ, and also the ongoing heart posture, right? It's the same. We come to Christ through repentance and faith, and we live in Christ every day with repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Next, he mentions baptisms and laying on of hands. So this has to do with the rituals of initiation into the faith. And then um, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So we're talking about our destinies, either inheriting God's blessings or his curses, depending on whether or not we're found in Christ. Now, these are glorious truths, right? Who doesn't rejoice when they hear someone talking about these things? When you hear someone testify that they, they, because of Jesus, they're able to turn from dead works. They're able to trust the promises of God and that their baptism stands as a declaration that they've been washed of their sins and they've received the Holy Spirit. And because of all this, they live with the hope of resurrection to life when all things will be made new. These are amazing realities, right? But they are just the ABCs of our faith. Move on from just these basics. Learn more, we're urged. Learn like your life depends on it. Because next, the text moves on from a rebuke to a warning. A warning, we're going to see that in verses 3 through 8. It says, and this we will do. We will move on. This we will do if God permits. Now, I would be worried if this verse didn't grab your attention. You mean God may not let us move on to maturity? Why in the world would that be the case? This is a good reminder for us that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is not an impersonal product that's just ours for manipulation or, or execution. It's not some sort of like cosmic equation that's just out there that we can plug into or not whenever we want. No, salvation is a gift that's given personally from a merciful God to rebels who every day of their lives have chosen to do things their own way. It's a personal gift. It can't be manipulated. It can't be appropriated the way we want. So if God is merciful, why wouldn't God always permit people to grow into recipients of salvation? Doesn't God want us to draw near? Isn't it true that he doesn't desire that any should perish? Yes, that's true. It's also true that God's promises are not trinkets to be played with. And that the good of his people depends on Christ being rightly known and honored. And precisely because God is good, God tells us in his word that God will not be mocked. And sometimes, Scripture shows us, actually in many places, 
that God hardens hearts instead of softening them. And you can see this, for example, in the second half of Romans chapter 1, where God is shown as giving people over to the folly that they've chosen all the more each time that they reject clear revelation about his character. But also other places of Scripture describe our progress towards salvation as also a work of God. So the hardening is God's punishment. The softening is God's work as well in those of us who are actually growing in holiness. It's not primarily something that we perform in ourselves, but it's something that we are enabled to do by the gift of God. And so this teaches us, this reminder, if God permits, it teaches us not to presume that just because we're in the church, we're actually on the narrow path. It teaches us not to take Scripture for granted, but rather we need to receive each glimpse of God that we get as an incredible gift. We mature in the faith through not taking it for granted by pressing in with a sense of urgency because we realize, whoa, God gave this to me. Now I'm responsible to do something with it. So we mature in the faith through honest prayers that wrestle with that. Like, God, show me what I'm missing. Reveal my blind spots. Open my eyes each new day to wonders in your word. Give me more than just my paltry, self-centered love. Give me the, the sacrificial sort of love that's from you. Teach me to truly consider others as more important than myself, as worthy of more honor than myself. Give me a craving for the pleasures of your presence because all I seem to want is the momentary high of this passing world. When we're praying prayers like that, we're not taking it for granted. We're realizing that God is the one who gives salvation. We're asking him to keep doing that good work in us. We know that we can move toward maturity only with God's aid, humbly depending on his enabling power. Okay, so we get that it's only by God's permission that we persevere in the faith, but that we're still longing a clearer picture of why he wouldn't permit that. And that's offered for us here in verses 4 through 6. Impossible. That's the first word in Greek. It's meant to stand out in a jarring way. Impossible, and it leaves us eager in suspense to discover what, what, what's impossible. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So the picture here is of someone who has enjoyed a fullness of exposure to the things of God followed by a fullness of rejection of it. Fullness of exposure followed by fullness of rejection. So if it helps to put a face to that person, you can think of Judas Iscariot. He was a close companion of our Lord for three years. He's, he heard all the teachings. He saw all the miracles. He, he partook in that sacred community with the other disciples. And then he grew disenchanted and he betrayed our Lord for a relatively insignificant amount of money. Now just to clarify, this passage is not speaking generally of people who oppose or oppress the faith, right? The Apostle Paul himself, he through Christians in prison. He had them murdered before Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. 
And heaven is actually going to be full. This is beautiful. Heaven's going to be full of former jihadists, former outspoken atheists, former witch doctors and masters of the occult who have turned from tormenting Christians and they've repented and they've actually become one themselves. So it's not speaking about people who just brutally oppose the faith. It's also not speaking of those who mock the faith in ignorance, like some 18-year-old on cruise night who walks away saying something sacrilegious in an attempt to shock me. Or it's not even talking about people who mock the faith like experienced writers and politicians who, who've been mocking the faith for years. No, what they're mocking is their caricature of the faith. They've never actually tasted of the real deal themselves. And this passage, what this passage is actually speaking of is people who were insiders. They were insiders. They believed that they belonged to Christ. The church believed that they belonged to Christ, but then one day they cast it all aside with disdain. And I'll add that this isn't even, this isn't even talking about people who drift away for a time without fully rejecting. And you can think about how the apostle Peter, he denied Christ three times, and then he was restored. You can think about how during the time of uh, the Roman persecution, some people under threat of death renounced Christ. But then they went back to church mournful, and then two decades later, they boldly endured martyrdom. So that's a reminder to us that this terrifying portrait of irreversible apostasy, it's not given so that we can try to figure out, okay, who's crossed that line? Who's past the point of no return? Um, it's also not given to discourage us from trying to bring people back who've, who've been wayward, right? Uh, the book of Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. So the purpose here is not to help us measure other people. The purpose of these words is for you. The warning is for you. The person who right now is thinking about other people, this warning is for you. This passage warns us that Judas's true betrayers of Christ, can still, can still and do still emerge in the church today. And God forbid that he or she would be among us here in this room. So let's look at the description of such a person in detail. It says... First, this person has once been enlightened. In other words, they, they've heard, they've understood, they've agreed with the clear gospel message. Second, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. We're not sure exactly what's in view here. It could be participation, communion, or just generally the, the blessings that are found in the community of the church. This person has shared in the Holy Spirit, or it could have the connotation that this person has been a companion of the Holy Spirit. And notice it, it doesn't say specifically about the Holy Spirit indwelling. More on that in a minute. But this person has definitely seen the work of the Holy Spirit. They may have even had the Holy Spirit work through them. Okay? There's every indication that Judas, when he was sent out with the twelve during Jesus' ministry, he was able to perform miracles just like the others. The Holy Spirit was active through him and around him. Fourth, this person has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Have you ever been comforted by God's words? Have you ever seen God's words as beautiful, as, as utterly unique? Well, imagine spitting 
on that goodness and forcing yourself to ignore the powers of the age to come that you've already seen at work. Fifth, this person then, after all of that, has fallen away. This person commits him or herself to an ongoing, decided rejection of Christ and his church. And this reality, this, this picture of this horror that's possible, this is why we must keep moving. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must go on to maturity because there is great and eternal peril if we don't. The danger of willful apostasy is real. And after a point, we're told that restoration is impossible. And the reason given is that God will not allow the name of Christ and the glory of Christ's finished work to be dragged through the mud and held up to contempt by former insiders who have become mockers. Further explanation is given with a picture in verses 7 and 8. So we're to imagine a land that is drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated. Okay? Well then, that land uh, that, that produces a crop receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So God is like a farmer. It's very similar imagery to what we see in the parable of the sower or the parable of the tares and the wheat. And um, here we're actually pictured as two types of, we could be one of two types of land. One that grows good crops, one that grows weeds. Um, Both have received water, graciously received water from the grower. But in the end, we either bear good grain or thorns and thistles. So let's stop here and consider, is this warning saying that we can lose our salvation? If so, we've got a problem because Scripture shows us again and again that those who genuinely come to Christ are safe. I'm going to read you some of those verses now because while I want you to take this warning seriously, I don't want you to misunderstand and think that Christians are just hanging by a thread and and it's all up to us to keep ourselves safe. No, that's the opposite of what God intends by offering us rest in himself. So just let these passages about the safety of the Christian hit you. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So the gospel of John repeatedly views eternal life as starting at the moment that we come to Christ. And that eternal life can't be taken away. John 10, 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans eight thirty emphasizes that those who are justified will certainly also be glorified. There's no such thing as a justified person who doesn't reach glory. In 1 Corinthians 1, 6-8, Paul tells the Corinthians that the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day 
of Jesus Christ. So if a good work was truly started, it will be completed. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Implication, if your faith is not protected, you weren't among those to whom God committed himself. So how then do we explain when someone really, really seems to be a genuine Christian, but in the end they aren't? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that all are not of us. And Hebrews 3.19 told us that those in the wilderness generation were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. And this is ultimately what's going on here. Ultimately, those who don't genuinely believe will repudiate Christ. They will go back into the world. Even, I might mention, if they keep attending church. It's not a matter of losing salvation. It's a matter of showing true colors. One pastor put it like this. The faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty at the first. The faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty at the first. Thorns and thistles simply don't come from the same plant as good grain. They may blend in early in development, but the difference can be seen with what harvest each bears. So I want you to hear this extreme warning for individuals who have closely tasted the things of Christ. They've presented themselves as insiders in the church, but they actually may not be genuine Christians. That you, are you afraid it might be? What should you do? Keep believing to the very end. Keep trusting Christ to the very end. Okay, but what does that belief look like? It looks like a genuine desire to go on to maturity. You love God, so you want to know him more. You want to live for him more. And so you grow like your life depends on it. And this type of endurance, it doesn't happen by some sort of self-reliant willpower, just gritting your teeth and say, I won't fall away. I'll never fall away. No, it, it happens rather not by by being all introspective and, and trying to pep yourself up, it happens by looking at Jesus. Just keep looking at Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus, truly seeing him as better than anyone or anything. That's how you make it to the end. That's how you keep believing. That's how you escape the danger of this warning. Well, at this point, you might feel scared or discouraged, um, which is probably what many of the first recipients of this letter felt. Uh, and that's exactly why the tone changes for us in verse 9. As a pastor, the, the author of Hebrews, his goal is by no means to leave them in a place of insecurity. Everything he said is 100% true, 100% necessary. But the inspired author of Hebrews, he knew these people who were receiving this letter. And so he tells them, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. How can he be so sure? If these severe warnings are true, if, if many who have convinced themselves that they are Christians and convinced others that they're Christians, but they're going to fall away 
If that's true, then how can any of us be sure about any of us? How can I be sure that I'm safe? Is there any encouragement or confidence to be had that we really do belong to Christ? Verse 10 gives us one way that we can be reassured, and that's to have others in the church comment on how they see the Spirit of God at work in us. Not at work through us, like how Judas might have cast out demons or healed people in Jesus' name. No, the work of God in us, producing the character of Jesus in us. So these people should be encouraged, the author of Hebrews feels, because they have a known record of good work, and they've shown love for God's name in serving the saints as they still do. And likewise, we can be encouraged when there's good fruit in our lives, when our work speaks for the redeemed condition of our hearts and, and the community of, of faith, the church has been sincerely served by us in Christ's name. And that should be an encouragement to us that we're on the right track. But is that it then? I just need to kind of score a few wins on the old works of love chart and then I'm safe and I can have confidence? No, not when you say it that way. We're rescued by God, not by good works. But we are rescued to good works. So works of love are evidence in the natural overflow of a changed heart. Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So this reminds us to look for that fruit of regeneration in our own lives. And it can be so thrilling when we see ourselves naturally wanting to act in ways that, that maybe we never would have before. When we see those desires and actions in our own lives changing, that should give us great joy. When I graduated college, my dad bought me this, this really nice car. I love that car. V6 engine, all the amenities. Um, I loved it. But the next year, I, I had... I had uh, parked outside my friend's house, and I was with him for a few hours, and there was this giant rainstorm. And we were talking, and then we started hearing, like, screams from the street. So we go outside, and the whole street is just totally flooded. And, you know, I ran to my car, and I looked in. There's standing water inside the car. I mean, it's toast. It was totaled. Um, and, um, you know, what did I do? I... I just kind of shrugged. And then, and then we went to work because it was dark. People kept driving in, and their cars were, like, floating away. So we ran, and we tried to cut them off and warn them, don't, don't drive, don't turn on this street. We ran further up the street where the water hadn't risen yet, and we warned people to move their cars. We helped people get out and, and move their stuff. And um, afterward, I, I just reflected. It was, it was a strangely thrilling night. Even though I lost that amazing car, you know, maybe I'll never be able to afford a car like that again. But I was filled with joy because I was struck by the realization that the Holy Spirit was changing my desires and my allegiances, and, and life just felt free and full of possibility because I wasn't, I wasn't tied to the things that I used to be. That's just, that's just a simple example of how you can get those glimpses of like, wait a minute, I think God's changing me pretty cool. And times like that are, are a great source of assurance, but truth be told, we're often not the best assessors of ourselves, right? Because we might be 
overly confident, overly generous with ourselves in our assessment, or we might be overly critical. So we'll like congratulate ourselves about some service we did for others, but it was totally done out of self-righteousness. Or maybe we'll be distraught because we do take these warnings seriously and we do see our sin accurately. And sometimes we see our sin more clearly than we see the grace of God. I have a friend and he, he's a, a great thriving pastor now, but 20, 20 years ago, he was, he was a very godly young man, but he would just be paralyzed at night with fear. He was just convinced that he was duplicitous and, and he was condemned to hell. And how did we help him? What did, how do you help someone who's just trapped in, in terror like that? What he needed, he needed regular doses of, and what each of us need as well, is the assurance that comes from the community of faith. So he needed brothers and sisters to come around him and say, dude, lighten up. Like, we all see evidence of the Holy Spirit in you, bro. Like, just, just keep on keeping on, you know? And... Um, just as verses 9 and 10 reassure them here that, that there is evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, we need to have that sort of role in each other's lives. Life groups are a great place for that to happen where we can really get to know each other. We can really speak into what is or isn't happening in each other's lives. And we can encourage one another when we see love exhibited there that's clearly supernatural in nature. But of course, if you're going to receive that sort of reassurance you're going to have to be known by the church and that also requires perseverance in the faith so so the thrust of this passage is to challenge us to diligently live in a manner that's consistent with our confession and to live in a church community that can tell us if we're fakers or not and our passage ends on a comforting tone it says and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises so that you may not be sluggish. This is actually um, the same word that was used at the beginning when he was talking about being sluggish of hearing. Same word. Now we see the, op- at the opposite bookend. Don't be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And that's a great teaser for next week when we'll think about someone who, through faith and patience, inherited the promises. We'll talk about Abraham, the father of the faith. So may God do that work in each of us, correcting us for our dullness and hearing, knocking home this warning that there is a point of apathy past which we won't be able to return, and comforting us also with a true assessment of ourselves. Assessment that can be verified by the community, assuring us that God is, in fact, doing something real in us. And I hope that you do see that, that that excites you, and I hope that it causes you to press in even more to what's beyond the elementary doctrines of the faith and press on toward maturity. Let's pray. God, there's uh, a lot in this passage. Um, we, we quickly come to see um, that there's a lot here that's not dependent on us. Thank you that you are at work in your people. And we ask for the grace to be faithful, to keep pressing on, to keep growing into maturity, to keep 
being part of community, to keep exhorting one another, humbly receiving exhortation too. So bring us along for your glory, we pray. Amen.